Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18 through the end of the chapter. Verse 18 through the end of the chapter. Let's read together. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and a sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg for that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to the Mount, to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of, of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on the earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And may God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. I mentioned we have two here. We have the mountain of the law and Mount Zion. We've got two. They're juxtaposed with each other, and the author of Hebrews has gone through the whole book telling you Jesus is better than the mountain of the law. It's been the entire book. He's been arguing that Jesus is better than religious practice and sacrificial system and priesthoods and all these things. Jesus is better than these things. Indeed, the way of the cross is better than the way of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The way of the river of life is better than the way of the world systems of rivers that give us bounty from the earth. The way of freedom is better than the way of slavery. So we read here Jesus being argued as the better way. In conclusion to the book, he is saying here that Jesus is greater than the law. And he explains here, for you have not come to what may be touched. Let's deal first with that. You didn't come to what may be touched. Now, I don't know if you've ever read the book of Exodus. 
uh, and the or the Torah as a whole. It's a it's a great read. If you get stuck at parts, skip a bit. It's a big book. You can go back and read it later. You get stuck at a at a page or at one of the so and so begat so and so begat so and so begat so and so begat so and so. If you get stuck on those, just jump ahead a little bit. God's not going to be mad if you just keep reading the Bible. So just jump ahead and keep going. So we read in the book of Exodus. They come out of slavery. They come across into the wilderness and they get to this big mountain. And they get to the mountain and Moses says, uh, God is here. And all of a sudden, the mountain is on fire. Top of the mountain, there's a big thundercloud around it. I don't know what it looks like. Just let your imagination run. This is one of those places in Scripture where you should see, visualize the mountain in your head. Use the creativity God gave you to imagine a mountain on fire. Not the trees on fire. The mountain, the rocks, the mountain itself is a blazing fire at the top, and there's a thundercloud there, and it is terrifying, and the voice of the Lord booms over the people of Israel, and they go, it's too much for us, Moses, we can't handle it, we're all going to die. Because that's what it feels like for somebody who has not been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb to stand before God. And Moses looks up at the mountain and he goes, I will go up and talk to God. And he goes up and God tells him, tell the people of Israel, if anyone touches the mountain, they die. If anyone touches it, they die. Not, not if anybody goes near it, not if anybody walks around it, not if anybody... Um, you know, not if anybody climbs halfway up, not if anybody, you know, lets their kid run over to, if they touch the mountain, period. Livestock, pets, family members, you are to stone them. Because that is how holy the presence of God is. Anyone comes near it, they die. Now, here's the weird thing. That mountain was what could be touched. In this passage, he says, You have not come to what may be touched. And he's referencing Mount Zion. You have not come to what may be touched. So Mount Zion is what is untouchable. What you can't walk over. And the word touch is stroke. Not grab, not hold on to. Not grip, it's, it's the word like gently caress, touch. You have not come to what may be touched. And then he describes what can be touched. This is what can be touched. Are you ready? This is what can be touched. A blazing fire and a darkness and gloom and a tempest and a sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg for no further messages be spoken to them. So what can be touched is this terrifying reality of the law. This terrifying, real picture that happens in the Old Testament. This literally happened. They stood at a mountain and God said, touch it and die. This picture of the law, they, they have not come to what may be touched. That's what can be touched. A blazing fire that ends in death. 
So if you want to live by the law, if you want to touch the law, if you want to try it by your own hand, this is a very beautiful poetic imagery, if you want to use your own hands, then what you have at your disposal is that which will terrify you and bring you death. And isn't it so? when you meet people on this earth who try to be good enough on their own, that they suffer a blazing fire within their soul that they cannot do good enough. That they cannot be good enough. Isn't it so that when you meet somebody who is struggling to obey the law, and they are insistent that they will be righteous by their own hands, and they are reaching to touch that mountain, they're reaching to call holiness to themselves, they're reaching to obey, and they can't do it, and they can't do it, and they can't do it, and then finally, you look at them as a Christian, and you go, just surrender! Give it up! Stop trying to go with the ethical framework of the knowledge of the tree, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Stop trying to determine your own ethical framework and instead surrender to the cross and go the way of the tree of life. Indeed, the first instruction that Paul gives the Ephesians in the book of Ephesians is sit. Sit. A submissive posture to a great king. He tells you to start salvation must begin in surrender. Surrendering what we can touch. Surrendering what we can grab. Because the only thing that we can touch, the only thing we can attempt to, to put our hands on is law. And that is a blazing fire of death and terror. So he explains, for they, in verse 20, for they could not endure the order that was given, even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Now, Israel was given that instruction to stone sinful uh, people who behave sinfully multiple occasions. They're given that instruction a lot. You know how many times it happens in the Bible? Three. They stone people three times, to my knowledge. I might have missed one, but I can count three on my head. In my head. Um, there are three times where it's recorded that they stone people. And they stone them rightly, and they obey the law, and they stone people, and it's terrifying. Three times, and yet David, who commits a stonable offense, not stoned. Countless judges who commit stonable offenses, not stoned. Innumerable people who commit stonable offenses, not stoned. And why? Because we cannot bear in our own strength the word of the Lord. And by bearing it, I mean we can't carry it in our own power. We can't be good enough by ourselves. There must be something that changes who we are before we can follow, before we can obey well. 
There must be something that moves in us to make us different. Indeed, the Holy Spirit must move in us to enact the, the life of Jesus within us. And that is what will give us the ability to follow Him. He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. He did it. He will do it. He will complete it. Him. We need Him. We've got this gloom and fire and darkness and the sound of a trumpet reminding you of all the feast, the festal trumpets and, and the trumpets of war. And you've got the picture of a voice booming from heaven that the people could not endure the instruction. They couldn't follow through with it. And in verse 21, indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said. I, I think that I wish that Greek had italics, because that's what I think this should read like. Even Moses said it. Even Moses said, this is terrible. I tremble with fear. Moses, the one who walks before God, the one who has the nerve to stand in front of God and go, no, don't kill them, because, and then formulate a legal argument as to why God shouldn't murder his people and start over. You remember that story? Some of you are looking at me with blank faces. In Exodus chapter 30, I think it's 32, it might be 33, Moses goes up on the mountain and he's getting the law of God from God. He's, he's been up on the mountain for several days and down in the camp, Aaron has with decent intentions but foolish, foolishly taken all the gold from the people of Israel because they have said, make us gods that we could worship them. We don't know what happened to Moses. He's been gone for 40 days. And they say, make us gods that we can worship them. And Aaron goes, okay. And he takes all their gold earrings and, and nose rings and all the wealth that they plundered from Egypt and he throws it into a fire and he smelts it and melts it and he inscribes, the wording there is very specific, he carves specifically a cow. And then he pulls it out and he goes, behold, Yahweh the cow. <laughs> and the Lord's wrath begins to burn from heaven. And he turns to Moses and says, that's it, I'm done, I'm going to kill them all and start over with you. And Moses has the nerve to stand before God and say, no, 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 no. Don't do that. Instead, for your name, for your glory, for your promises, and for the people, and for the nations to see, be merciful. And then he comes down from the mountain, having secured from God that God will show mercy to the people of Israel in this moment. He comes down from the mountain, and he sees the cow, and he's furious. And he throws the, Ten the, the Decalogue, but it's not just the Ten Commandments. He throws the stone tablets that God had made on the ground and breaks them and points the people and says, that's it. And he grinds up their idol, grinds it into dust, and then makes them drink it. 
as if to say, what you have done will be no good for anything but waste, ever. This will go through your system and out, and it will be done. Because these idols are good for nothing but waste. We won't even reuse the gold. It's going to be waste. And a plague hits Israel, and people die. Because they came to what might be touched. They came to a mountain that might be touched. And it's terrifying when we are left to our own accord to try and be good enough. It is terrifying. It is terrifying. And Moses himself trembles with fear in front of that reality. But here's the good news. Verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. How beautiful. We come to this city, this kingdom that has no, no need for our work. That we don't have to touch it. We don't have to put our hands out and grab it. He has come. Messiah has come. And we are free. And we've come to a city that can't be touched with hands. You know, if it can't be touched with hands, it can't be taken by hands either. If it can't be touched with hands, it can't be overrun by hands. It can't be overwhelmed by the circumstances of the world because it's bigger and greater than the world. It can't be defeated by the systems of the world because it has overcome those systems. It is greater than those systems that are in existence, you have come to Mount Zion. And take note of some of these words. We're just going to jump through this text multiple times here. You come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. So this is a city which inevitably has citizens. And it's got angels in festal gathering. It's got angels partying. You came to a party. You didn't come... To labor, you came to a party where the heavenly beings are in party mode. Festal gatherings. That's a fancy way to say they are having fun at a party. You didn't come to a place with a checklist that's going to check off all the things that you did right or wrong. You didn't come to a thing that you could touch and manipulate. You came invited to a party. Last night I had the privilege of going to a party. It was fun. It was a lot of fun. My wife was playing piano at this party. It's always fun. I mean, incredible. Have you met my wife and heard her play piano? Amazing. There's a piano at the party? There's a piano at the party. 
And we were at the party, and she was playing, and there was singing at the party, and there was art everywhere. It was an art exhibit party. Yes, I know. It was an art exhibit party, and there's art everywhere on all walls, and there's music and, and expressive people who are interested in the, the art world, and we're, we're talking, and we're having a wonderful time. And you know what I had to bring to that party? Nothing. Because I was invited. I was invited to the party, and the host had laid out everything. The artwork was provided for by the host. The music was provided for by the host. They paid her job. They, the music was provided for by the host. The food was provided for by the host. And, and I got to come and enjoy. You see, you, you came to Mount Zion and became a citizen of Mount Zion. And in that city, in that, in that mountain, in that, in that place, you are invited to a party of festal gatherings where people, angels in heaven, are having a party and you get to be invited. And nothing is required of you except the invitation which is the clothing of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Remember that, that parable of the wedding feast where the guy shows up to the party and he doesn't have the right garments? That's because the garments in that day and age were your invitation. That guy didn't have an invitation. And he tried to crash the party. I tell you, you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ and you get to go to the party. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to do it. You don't have to work it. It is, it is given to you. And you, you are at the party. Notice that this is a present tense thing here. You didn't come to the Mount Sinai, the mountain, the mountain of the law. You didn't come to that, you, which can be touched and manipulated by your hands and worked you came to Mount Zion. You came to Mount Zion. Verse 22. But you have come. This is, you're there. This is a reality for you. You were invited to the party. And yes, we look forward to the day that that party is made revelatory to the whole world. That party is opened up and everybody sees it. We look forward to that day. But hear this. You are at the party. Some of us are acting like we're still trying to touch the law. You're at the party. You've been brought to the party. So we've got citizenship here that brings us to a party of innumerable angels and, and to, verse 23, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, look at that, there's an assembly that's enrolled, and to God, the judge of all, so God who holds the role, God who holds the list of names, that's what judges did, the list, he kept it. It was his list. You're coming to this assembly, to this gathering, to this enrollment, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteousness, of the righteous made perfect. So look at how it describes those who are at this party. 
You've got angels, innumerable angels, innumerable heaven beings. I love that because it's just the, it's as if the author of Hebrews has this vision in his head and he starts counting and goes, ah, it's too many. Right? And just because there's, there's more than you can count. More angels than you can imagine. Imagine the stars in the sky as your eyes slowly adjust. So I want you just to get an image of this. You've been outside at night and you've looked up at the stars and your eyes have slowly adjusted to the light. And as they adjust, you get more and more and more stars and more stars and more stars. Thank God that we don't live in downtown Houston where you can't see them, but we live here. And you can look outside and see them. If you don't do that regularly, you need to. It's good for the soul to remember your smallness and God's greatness. You look up at the stars and they just become greater and greater. I want you to imagine going into the party and seeing angels. And as your eyes adjust, you just begin to see more and more and more and more. And indeed, that's how it is with the things of God through grace. As we embrace grace, as we see grace more clearly, as we begin to understand that grace has been lavished on us, we begin to see more and more and more of the things of God. And it becomes brighter and brighter, and the party becomes more and more real. And we are part of the assembly of the firstborn. The, the people gathered And who is the firstborn but Jesus Christ, the righteous? Colossians chapter 1, he's the firstborn from the dead. We have this part, we're part of the assembly of those who trust in Christ. And then it says this phrase of those who trust in Christ, that they are uh, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That's a title. The righteous made perfect. So we got our righteousness in Christ, and he worked to make us perfect. Earlier in the book, in chapter 3, it talked about Jesus Christ being our sanctifying God. He sanctifies us and makes us holy. He's the one that makes you perfect. And look, you have been made perfect. The righteous made perfect. The work has been completed. And you stand before God in a perfected state. And indeed, sanctification continues on this earth as we walk this earth. By the way, that's the second instruction in Ephesians. Sit first, then walk. As we walk this earth together, learning what it means to be holy and learning to live in the new nature that we've been given, and the new life that we've been given in Christ Jesus. We are in the assembly of the righteous who have been made. We are in the presence of God. And why here in verse 24? And we are in the presence of Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. So we've got citizenship. We've got the gathering of the the festivities, we've got the party gathering, we've got the assembly, we are enrolled um, enrolled under the eyes of the judge and the righteousness of Christ, and we've got this mediator of the new covenant. We are in the new covenant. Are you seeing a theme here? You are not enrolled in the law. 
You are not in the assembly of the law. You are not in the gathering of the law. Those descriptors are for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. You have been gathered together in Christ in the kingdom of God. You are gathered together in Christ in the kingdom of God into a new covenant and you're sprinkled by your and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What did Abel's blood speak? Spoke law. It spoke law and judgment. You you follow? It spoke law and judgment. He came to Cain and he said, "Where's your brother Abel?" And Cain, with all his foolishness, looked at him and said, uh, "I don't know. I'm not my. Am I my brother's keeper?" And God says. Yes, you are your brother's keeper. So often misunderstood in that passage. Yes, you are your brother's keeper. Yes, Cain, what have you done? Indeed, now your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground, and I hear it even now. Abel's blood, Abel's blood proclaimed guilt and death. Jesus' blood proclaims life and innocence. Abel's blood points at us and goes, you are guilty. Jesus' blood points at us and goes, you are mine. And you say, but Lord, I'm guilty. He goes, you're mine. You're part of the assembly. You belong. You belong to him. You're his. That's why you came to a mountain that can't be touched. Because you're his. You came to Mount Zion. You came to the tree of life. If you discern the difference between the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, if you go to the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you are stuck trying to figure it out yourself form an ethical framework of what's good and what's evil, and you try to make the right decisions. You come to the tree of life, and you're just given life. And you go, Lord, but I'm wicked. And he goes, yes, you are, but I've taken care of that. Come to me, the water of life. This is freedom. This is life. And this is important. It's important that people understand what has happened. That Jesus Christ the righteous has rescued sinners. And has changed us. And has given us life. And unlike Abel's blood, which calls out for our damnation and death, Jesus' blood sprinkles us and makes us righteous and speaks a better word. Verse 25, he says, so in light of all this, in light of the two mountains, looking at the two mountains, just in your head, get an image, by the way, in your head. I know I drew one for you if you've got the little paper, but if, if you can get an image in your head of a mountain with a beautiful uh, scene of a city, 
Yes, I did just pass aggressively call my own artwork beautiful. Beautiful scene of a city on your right or left, whichever side you prefer. And then on the other side, a terrifying, fiery mountain that is going to destroy. Get that image in your head. Just see them both. The one that you can be destroyed by, you can walk to however you want. Do whatever you want, and you can get there. You get to do you. You do you, and you'll get to that mountain. The one over here, the righteous mountain Zion, the beautiful city, that has a path. That has a way to walk in which the man who laid it said, follow me. It involves self-denial. It involves self-sacrifice. It involves what Jesus calls taking up your cross daily. It involves walking the narrow road. It involves striving for holiness. It involves moving in that way. But here's the deal. You can't enter this path at all until you have the garment of Jesus Christ's righteous covering. And once you have that garment, you want that path. Once you have that covering, you want that path. And those that don't have that covering, they're going to do them. And it's over here. And it's the wide way. Jesus says, wide is the way that leads to destruction. And narrow is the way that leads to righteousness. And few are there who follow it. We are Christian. Which means we were invited to that path. Which means our joy will not be found in just doing me. My joy and my life will not be found in just being me. My life and my joy will be found in finding out who I am in Christ. Which means I walk that path means I labor on that path for the joy that is set before me, which is knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And it is fun because it's a party and we were invited. So we get this passage here in verse 25. See, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? There is a judgment for those who stand in front of the law that if they refuse his voice, they will die. And everyone who stands in front of the law refuses his voice. There is a judgment for them that refuse Christ and refuse salvation. And he points back to the Old Testament. He says, if they didn't escape, how do you think you're going to escape? Verse 26. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. So this is a terrifying thing. If we stop right there at verse 26, we've got God saying, I remember back when I cracked the earth open and swallowed Korah and all those guys, and my voice shook the earth, and everybody trembled, and there was death and plague in the camp of Israel. Remember that? 
And he said, and then at verse, the end of verse 26, he says, yeah, this is going to be worse. When I come, it's going to be worse. I'm going to shake not only the earth, but I'm going to crack the heavens open too. Everything is going to be destroyed. And then verse 27, we have our hope. Yet this phrase, this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. One day this world will come to an end. Everything on it is going to be shaken and resurrected and stuff's going to get destroyed. It's just going to be, it's going to be bad. In fact, if you read the, the last book, you see a third of the earth this, a third of the earth that, a third of the earth dies, a third of the earth gets sick, a third of the earth. Like there's this constant destruction of everything. And it's terrifying. And then at the end, God resurrects life and recreates the earth. And he recreates that which cannot be shaken. So this is, this is the final, this would be what I told you earlier, many theologians consider this the final warning. This would be it. See to it that you don't refuse Christ. Because if you do, you're at what, that which can be touched, which is stuff that can be shaken. And if you don't refuse Christ, if you listen to Christ, then you have come to Mount Zion, which cannot be touched and is not shakable. It's not shakable. And then he says, so thank God. Verse 28, he says, therefore let us be grateful. He said, thank God for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. That last image I want you to grab hold of this morning. We've been studying the book of Exodus on, uh, on Thursday nights, and, and we came to the image of the burning bush. A bush that is on fire, that is not consumed. So I've thought about that before. I've tried to draw it. You know, you draw twigs, and you, you draw a fire around it. You go, it's not consumed. And you look at it, it's still... But somebody said to me, I think it may have been one of our kids. I don't know who it was. It may have been a kid. It may have been an adult. I don't, I don't remember. But it was a brilliant observation. And they said, I wonder if the bush was green. And it suddenly occurred to me that every time I had imagined the bush, it was a ball of twigs. A consumed bush. Trying to get my head around scripture, and I'm not succeeding. This thing had life in it. It was not consumed, as in it wasn't burned up. It was alive. And it's covered in fire. And this is the image we have here of one who is in Mount Zion. Though the fires rage around them, they are not consumed. It's the image we had of ancient Israel. Though the fire of the world oppressed on them, and though the slavery of Egypt was crushing them, they were not consumed. Indeed, they multiplied amidst the fire. 
And God, passing by, saw their plight and comes to intervene. Indeed, this is what Christianity is. Our God is a consuming fire, which means he's terrifying and hot and it consumes. And yet, because we have come to that which cannot be shaken, we are like the bush that is given life amidst the fire. So, we praise God and thank him for his mercy and his grace. 